0: this morning is found from philippians 10 or philippians 4 verses 10 through 23 if you'll please stand for with me for the reading of god's word if you're reading from the black bible that's under the chair in front of you it's on page 982 i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that i am speaking of being in need for i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
1: join me in prayer real quick. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability this morning to hear it, to let it permeate our hearts, and to let it change and transform the way that we live in a way that honors you. Lord, I just ask that you would be with my brother this morning as he boldly proclaims this word, and that he boldly proclaims your gospel, and that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be attentive, and that our eyes would be wide open to see and understand um, your word and to apply it to our lives. And we ask this in your power and your strength, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, awesome. Good to be here, guys. Good morning, Delta Church. We are wrapping up the book of Philippians today, so this is um, it's a good day. We've been Marching through this book now for just shy of a full full three months. We've spent 11 weeks, including today, looking at Paul's letter to the book of Philippians. And we've been using this, this catchphrase to summarize what Paul has been teaching the Philippians and subsequently what he's been teaching us as New Testament believers, believers in Jesus Christ. You've been hearing me say this phrase that the book of Philippians was a letter written to... Heavenly citizens, this idea of those who have had the gospel applied to their hearts, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ are heavenly citizens. They are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Paul is using that language in Philippians 3. He's using that language in Philippians chapter 1. And we are noting all the way throughout that over and over again, Paul continually strikes the chord of joy. He's constantly calling the Philippians to rejoice in this way, to rejoice because this thing is happening. Paul is noting how he is rejoicing because he's experiencing certain things as he's receiving gifts, as he's interacting with the people there in Rome, as he's interacting with his brothers and sisters, and as he has interacted with them in the past. There's this constant chord, this constant theme of joy that is just echoing throughout the book of Philippians. But it's not merely a book of joy, but the book of Philippians, this letter from Paul is a book of practicality. Paul is just simply talking about, because you are a heavenly citizen, there's just simple right ways for you to live. There's wrong ways for you to live. There is a way that is right for you to live that reflects who you are. Because you are a heavenly citizen, there is a manner worthy of you living, thinking, acting, doing that rightly represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul lands the plane of this letter to the Philippians. Today you're going to see him come and address one of the main reasons why he set out to write this letter to the Philippians. Paul was the recipient of some gifts, of some support that these brothers and sisters, these dear friends of his in Philippi, they were helping support him in gospel partnership as Paul was going around in his missionary journeys. And these were people who were freely giving. They were contented in their situation. They were giving, and they were giving generously. And Paul, having received a gift while in prison in Rome, rejoices, yes, these people are still doing what they did with me at the very beginning, all the way back in Acts chapter 16 when Paul planted the church. This is, they saw what Paul was doing, they jumped on board with what Paul was doing, and they are willing to give of themselves in a very generous, sacrificial, and somewhat regular manner. And Paul's simply going to go now, man, I rejoice in this. I'm excited for this. I am thankful for this. And so when we turn to these last set of verses, we see how God is going to provide for these Philippian believers, how God provided for his apostle Paul through the Philippian believers. Paul is going to strike this chord of rejoicing, and what you're going to see is that Paul is going to push this idea, this one last time into the lap of the Philippian believers. What he's going to say is this, is that heavenly citizens... The very thing that you are, Christians, are to be marked by contentment and generous giving. Heavenly citizens are marked by contentment and generous giving. And if you can almost view, some of us are old enough to remember Polaroids, those little instant um, pictures. You snap and boom, it immediately shoots out a picture. For some of us more of the not older age might um, be more readily understanding of the word Instagram. And so what Paul does is he comes along and he takes three little Instagram pictures of these gifts that he's received. And he just looks at this gift he's received and what he says is, you have gifted me this This gift, you've supported me in my need, and that leads him to talk about contentment. Then he turns around and says, This gift you've given me, it's nothing new. This is exactly what you were doing from the beginning. And he's going to turn in another set of verses and say this previous gift, the gift that you gave me all the way back in Acts chapter 16, ten years previously when I planted the church there in your city, you guys gifted me. And it's going to see that Paul, through talking about this gift that he received, is going to talk about the Philippians giving. And then in those last set of verses, Paul's going to turn back around and look at that most recent gift that he received from Epaphroditus. And he's going to talk about this idea of generosity. And he's going to do it through that third snapshot, through that third looking at the gifts that the Philippians brought. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And then as we pray, I'm going to ask you to do what we usually do is not to be just merely passive prayers where you hear me praying for you but that as we pray and we ask God to come and reside the proclamation of his word, that you would actively pray for your brothers and sisters, that as the word is proclaimed, the spirit would move, grab these words, and that you'd be praying for me as I'm praying for you and you're praying for your brothers and sisters, that they would experience and know God today through the proclamation of his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that true contentment is found in the Son, Jesus Christ And whatever the situation, in any and every circumstance, Father, I pray that you would lead us to the place where we rest in Christ's sufficiency. We are needy people. We need the gospel for salvation, and we need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ applied to our hearts daily. We are so prone to wander. We are so prone to leave the God we love Father, we ask that you put to death the discontent that so readily dwells within us, that you would free us to be generous givers, free us from the love of material stuff, sever our ties to the lie that contentment is found in material goods. Father, through these scriptures today, lead us to the place of generous contentment, found in Christ Jesus. Spirit, inhabit my words today as I preach. Would it not be me speaking merely, but would these words rooted in Scripture be infused with the power of our living God, and would He come and exhort, admonish, and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ? I pray these things in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So why don't you look in your copy of Scripture there. The first thing we're going to do is see where Paul is going to look at that first snapshot. It's that idea of he's going to address this most recent gift that's come from Epaphroditus. And as he begins to talk about these gifts that they have received, what he's going to do is then stop and turn to this idea of contentment. You see that there in the first uh, handful of verses there, verses 10 through 13. Paul's going to address this idea of gifts and contentment. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So with these verses, Paul once again strikes the chord of joy, yet this time it isn't a command for others to rejoice like we've been seeing here in this last couple of verses we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. Rather, it's a declaration of Paul himself saying, this is the reason why I'm rejoicing. Paul turns this idea of rejoicing in on himself. It's no longer, hey, you think this way in rejoicing. Hey, you um, run with this idea of rejoicing in this way, but it's more of this is a reason why I'm rejoicing. He's looking in the mirror of rejoicing, and he sees his own reflection, and he says, there is one key specific reason why I am rejoicing right now. His dear friends, the Philippians, have walked with him through thick and thin, and giving and receiving, partnering with him in the gospel, and all these things led Paul to rejoice greatly in the Lord. Paul's rejoicing was rooted in the Philippians' revived concern for him. You see that in verse 10, I rejoiced. I rejoiced greatly, I rejoiced in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He notes, yes, you were indeed concerned for me, but you just had no opportunity to express your concern Their concern was revived because they had a fresh opportunity to serve the apostle. This was their friend. This was their beloved friend, the one who came bearing the good news that Jesus Christ is a savior. They were sinners, and they could indeed have eternal life with the Father because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And their hearts were knit together very, very closely and they partner with Paul from the beginning, but from the beginning, as Paul went along in his missionary journeys, there came a point at some point in time through their communications where something obviously fell away because their concern had no opportunity to be expressed, but somehow, in some way, some shape, some form, they hear, hey, Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. We need to dispatch somebody. They send Epaphroditus down to Rome. Their concern never waned. They just never had an opportunity to be able to step back into full bloom partnership with Paul until now. They hear Paul's in Rome. We want to go and love on our brother. So, for Paul, speaking about these gifts leads him to talk about contentment in three different ways. So it's, it's sort of interesting here because verse 10 could be mistaken, right? When Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Paul's rejoicing in the revived concern was a good thing, yet this may have led some to think that Paul was speaking something wrongly, right? If someone were just to come up to you and go, hey man, I'm really glad that you finally have revived your concern for me at length. You know, where have you been, pal? I've been sitting here with needs that need to be met. How come you haven't been stepping into this situation and helping me and helping supply my need and making sure my needs were met? Paul is not saying that. But what he is saying is this... I am rejoicing because your concern has been revived, but I need you to know I'm not fired up just because my needs have finally met and somehow I don't want to convey to you that I've just been sitting around miffed like no one's, no one's here to help, no one's, no one's around. Where's God in this situation? Everyone's abandoned me, everyone's forsaken me, and then, and then all of a sudden you guys came along and it's like finally at last someone's come along to help me. He wants to debunk that idea. While in prison, Paul definitely had needs, but he didn't want to convey that relief of his needs was his cause for rejoicing. For no matter the situation, Paul had really learned to be content. You see that in verse 11. Look in your copy of scripture there. Paul comes around with that phrase, not that, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He wants to correct something that might be misunderstood in verse 10. I do have need, but I want you to know that my rejoicing isn't based in you meeting my need. Why? For, because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is a prisoner. He is living in a small apartment. He is chained to a Roman guard. He is living on a meager diet, yet these things did not destroy his contentment. Paul is going to teach us something about contentment. He's going to push the pause on his thank you letter for the gifts received. And in verses 11, 12, and 13, he's going to show us something about contentment, legitimate Christian contentment. And the first thing he teaches us is this, that Paul's contentment was with little. He had needs, but these needs weren't going to debunk his contentment In this situation, he had learned to be content. In whatever situation he had found previously up to this time, he had learned contentment. Contentment is a thing learned. I love, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the way Paul penned this to his friends. For him to come along and say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, as you'll see here in the next verse, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. He's teaching us something about contentment. Contentment isn't this instantaneous thing we step into on the day of salvation. Contentment is part of growing and being molded into the image of Christ's likeness. Contentment is a thing learned. It is a thing that we are to strive for. For it is not attained fully at salvation. It is part and parcel of growing in holiness, of growing in Christ likeness. Several weeks ago, when we were back in Philippians chapter 2, we were reading and talking and seeing how Paul was pressing the truth of sanctification. The word that we said just basically means this, this idea of growing in Christ-likeness, growing more and more, being molded more and more into the image of Jesus. And we saw this phrase where Paul said, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This idea of learning contentment is very much part of what it is to look like working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But remember, this is important that we need to understand this, is that we don't strive for contentment to get salvation with the Father, but because we are right with the Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ, because the gospel has been applied to us, we are now equipped with the Spirit of God to be able to strive forward in legitimate Christian contentment. Secondly, Paul is going to teach them about contentment is found there in Verse 12. Paul's contentment was independent of his circumstances. Not only was his contentment, he could be satisfied with little, but Paul's contentment was independent of his circumstances. Look at verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That phrase there, in any and every circumstance, sounds like the phrase that we just read back there in verse 11, in whatever situation. So Paul's saying, listen, in in whatever situation I've learned, I am to be content in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. Through these experiences and spiritual maturity, Paul had learned to live above his circumstances and not to let them affect his contentment. His contentment was legitimately independent of his circumstances. This is what he's learned as he's grown more and more in Christ-likeness. I love that phraseology there. It was the same phrasing that we used last week, whenever Paul is saying, do not be anxious about anything. We said, anything means anything. Rejoice in the Lord always, always means always. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Everyone means everyone. And when he comes now to addressing this idea of what does true contentment look like, what he is saying is in whatever situation, in any situa- situation you might come to in life, in every circumstance, it does not matter, it is possible to live and think and move and breathe in this way. These are things that Paul's learned as he's grown more and more, more and more, more and more like Christ. His contentment was truly... Outside of himself. This wasn't some navel gazing, look within yourself and things will be all right mentality. This wasn't a philosophy of self sufficiency. Rather, it was Paul learning to live content in whatever situation because of Christ's sufficiency. There's a play on words going on here because whenever Paul is saying what he's saying in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, that word content is actually the word self-sufficient. And the philosopher of Paul's day would have come along and applauded Paul saying, yes, There were philosophers in Paul's day who were to say, yes, you are to be self-sufficient. This is sort of attaining a higher level of life in whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, knowing how to be brought low, knowing how to abound, learning the secret of facing plenty, facing hunger, abundance, and need. What we are to do, the philosophers would say, is be self-sufficient. We look and we turn the gaze of our eyes, of our mind, onto ourselves, and as we look to our ourselves we basically pull ourselves up by our bootstraps we grin and bear it we white knuckle through this thing and we have to look in on ourselves So up to this point in time, the philosopher would have said, Yes, Paul, I agree with verse 11. Yes, Paul, I agree with verse 12. Self-sufficiency is good. Self-sufficiency is right. But Paul dumps this entire philosophical way of thinking on its head when you come to verse 13, because in verse 13 he says this, I have learned to be self-sufficient, but my self-sufficient isn't rooted in me. My self-sufficiency is rooted in Christ's sufficiency. Jesus is the center of this thing. My contentment, my self-sufficiency in these situations of life finds its grounding in Jesus Christ alone. In verse 13, Paul comes and he grabs this idea of Christ and his sufficiency empowering Paul to live and think in these ways, in these circumstances, in these situations, and he roots it, plants it firmly in Jesus. Paul's contentment is rooted in Christ's sufficiency. This is the secret he's he's talking about. When he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, the secret that he's talking about is this, self-sufficiency isn't rooted in me, self-sufficiency is rooted in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and his person, Jesus Christ and his work. So that really goes a long way to help us with verse 13, right? So we've been saying this last week, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, it's the money verse, it's the money chapter, right? If you own any Christian paraphernalia, so we said last week, there is a high degree of likelihood that you've got some verse from Philippians chapter 4 tattooed on your mug, on your coin, on your keychain, on your shirt, on your bumper sticker, whatever it is. You've got something from Philippians chapter 4, I'm guaranteed. And the winner seems to be generally verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. King James Version gives us this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you have to be careful here because you have people who will come and grab this verse, rip it out of context, and then they just abuse this verse because this verse is speaking of something very specific to the Christian life. Right? So I grew up with these kinds of youth, youth-oriented events. You had guys called the Awesome Power Team. I don't know if you've seen the Awesome Power Team. <clears throat> so I am not mocking them. Okay, you have to understand this. I am not, they had a legitimate ministry. My point is this. They would come in, dudes just ripped out. I mean, you know, shirts like about to blow off their body. I mean, muscular guys. And what are they doing? I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. They're breaking like Louisville sluggers over their knee. They're bending a rebar around their thigh. They're like tearing telephone books in half of their teeth. I mean, they're like, ah, you know, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. Now, they were doing something, but I don't know that this verse is, really speaking about that. Often we will take this verse and go, okay, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. I can go off and do this big, amazing thing. You know, if my work week is hard, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. It's like, yeah, there is some legitimacy to that way of thinking, but you're also treading a dangerous path because buried in context, what Paul is talking about is this. The all things of verse 13 is the list of stuff that he's talking about specifically in verses 11 and 12. So when we're reading the scriptures and we come and we see verse 13, what we need to understand is it is the Lord who strengthens Paul to live through these things, leaning upon a strength that is outside himself. The secret that Paul has learned is Christ's efficiency, the strength of Christ's sufficiency. Paul can do all these things, the things of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, being brought low, knowing how to abound in whatever situation, learning to be content. These are the all things of verse 13. He can do these things through him, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul's contentment did not arise from his own inherent or innate resources. His his self-sufficiency was entirely due to the sufficiency and power of another. Paul was united with Christ in his death and resurrection. He made that argument at the the middle of Philippians chapter 3. And it is in this union Paul found the source of God's power that enabled him to be content in these circumstances. See, this will dump your world upside down if you walk in these things that Paul is talking about. Because if you go to work on Monday and you bump into your co-worker who is living and thinking and working through life that is hard because life is hard for everybody... If you bump into your coworker who is arguing for self-sufficiency, what he's going to argue is my circumstance in my life, for me to be able to get through this circumstance requires me looking to myself, that is how I'm going to get through this thing but for us as believers if we step into that situation maybe we're walking through a similar if not the exact same situation as this coworker who is not a believer in Jesus Christ when you walk through this same situation in life or if you come along and you walk with this coworker who maybe it's only him experiencing this situation in life what we do is we come and enter into that circumstance and we say, it's not me looking to myself, but it's me looking to Christ, for in Christ's sufficiency, I am supplied to be able to walk through this. That is true contentment, and that is contentment that will blow the minds of unbelievers. Because the world says, look to yourself, brother. If you want to get something done, you need to accomplish this. Paul's saying, the way that you walk through life, experiencing circumstances, whether it's good or bad, is with Christ's sufficiency. Through the Philippians' gift, Paul teaches us about the idea of contentment. So when you look at verses 14 through 17, Paul turns to another time that the Philippians gave a gift, and this time he's going to address this idea of their giving. See, Paul doesn't want his teaching on contentment to somehow lead the Philippians to the conclusion that the revived concern was wrong for him. They had genuine concern for their friend. The opportunity arose for them to help, and Paul acknowledges that they did right by sharing in his trouble. You see that in verse 14. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. There's this ebb and flow through these verses where Paul says, man, I'm thankful for the gift, but let me teach you something. But in me teaching you something, don't think that I'm trying to debunk the good thing that you did in giving the gift. Thank you for the gift, but don't think that I'm just trying to beg more gifts out of you. It was a good thing that you did, but let me talk about the gift. So there's this ebb and flow where he's weaving this fine line of what it looks like for a Christian minister and Christians in general to go. I had genuinely learned contentment in Christ. I also genuinely had a need. So for God to use you to speak in my life by supplying a need, I can rejoice God in your supplying my need. I can also rejoice in God that I'm content in that situation to where if you wouldn't have showed up, it's not like I, my whole life was just completely derailed. I was truly content and empowered and strengthened by the sufficiency of Christ. He's going to do something similar here. Look at verses 15 and 16. And You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul recognizes that the Philippians were a giving people, This recent gift from Epaphroditus in Rome was another example of the same generous spirit that had characterized his friends from the time when they were first committed to the gospel. Their sharing in his trouble was a form of gospel partnership. And from this point forward in Acts chapter 16, through Macedonia, down into Corinth, all the way up 10 years later to this time where they met up again with Paul and were able to revive their concern for him in prison, Paul and his companions traveled from city to city. Nobody partnered with them in the way that the Philippians partnered with them. I love that. Even in Thessalonica, you can go read Acts chapter 17. The experience that Paul had in Philippi in Acts 16 was completely different from the experience that he had in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. But even in this place, these brothers and sisters, these newly converted people were willing to walk, willing to partner, willing to give, willing to receive, willing to share in his trouble, share in his affliction, share in his suffering. They saw the beauty and the glories of the gospel, and the conclusion they drew was this. It is worthy of us to give of ourselves generously, sacrificially, regularly to this man because God is using this man, the gospel is advancing through this man, and our desire is to see the gospel advance. Verse 17 is another one of those, those statements where Paul comes around on the heels of saying these things. He, he needs to do another qualification. So when he comes to verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So again, what he doesn't want them to do is go, okay, we're confused here, Paul. You just said, thank you for the gift. Then you said, it's not like I really needed the gift because I'm really content. Hey, but thank you for the gift. And remember that time you gave me all those gifts, but I don't really want any more gifts. And so it's like, (laughs) what's going on? You know, I feel like I'm on a ship being tossed back and forth. Like, what's Paul driving at? Well, Paul is driving at this, this big idea that I am truly content When you hear me talking and going, yes, I'm rejoicing because of the way you're partnering, what I'm not trying to do is somehow subliminally coerce you into giving me more gifts. I really don't want that. He's not seeking gifts, but he is seeking something. What is he seeking? He is seeking fruit that increases to your credit. Their kindness in gospel partnership was just another reason why Paul rejoiced. But once again, he doesn't want his friends to misunderstand what he's saying about the gifts he received, so he sets out to distinguish what exactly he was seeking. He assures the Philippians that he wasn't seeking the gift that they had brought to him. He truly was content with his circumstances and not seeking a gift, but he was seeking fruit. So when you go and look at a fruit tree, my granddad used to have an apple orchard. Big apple orchard on the western um, part of Illinois, Calhoun County. Um, And those are great memories. Uh, Being able to go there and help my grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins harvest apples when it came fall time. So when you look at those apple trees, when you look at any fruit tree, the sign that that tree is a healthy tree is that the tree bears fruit. The fact that there was fruit on that tree was a sign that the tree was healthy, that the tree was growing in good soil, that the tree was rooted in the soil. The roots were doing its job of getting water and nutrients, supplying the tree. The tree was providing shade. The leaves were green. Fruit was growing. It was a producing tree. The tree was doing what it was supposed to be doing. And the fruit of giving and receiving in the Philippians' lives, the fruit of entering into gospel partnership with Paul, the fruit of helping with his needs once and again, speaks something of the soil that the Philippians were rooted in. Their giving and desire to see the kingdom advance was a sign that the gospel had been applied to their hearts. He's making something very clear. What I'm doing in rejoicing because of the gifts that you've given me isn't I'm rejoicing, give me more. I'm rejoicing, give me more. Or I'm rejoicing. Give me more. What he's saying is, I look at the fruit in your lives. The very fact that you are willing to give of yourselves sacrificially and generously tells me something about the attitude and the legit condition of your heart. The gospel has been applied to your heart. People who are not gospel believers don't give generously and sacrificially to things that advance the gospel. There are people who give generously and sacrificially, philanthropists, but they're not doing it to see the gospel advanced. Paul says you guys were poor. You guys were afflicted. You guys didn't have a lot, but you were genuinely seeking to see the gospel advance. When I look at that, that is fruit in your lives that tells me the gospel is true. Paul rejoiced in this the fruit of giving says something about the spiritual health of the believer. The fruit of giving says something about the spiritual health of the believer. Paul could look into the lives of his friends and go, I see the fruit and I'm going to draw the conclusion that you are spiritually healthy. Paul rejoiced at the Philippians. He rejoiced at their giving because their giving was fruit of the gospel in their lives. Lastly, look at verses 18 through 20 there. Paul is going to give us another snapshot where he's going to teach us something else. But this time he's going to go back to that most current, the most recent gift that he received from Epaphroditus. And this time Paul's going to build on the idea of giving, the giving attitude he saw in the Philippians' lives. And he's going to add something to it. He's going to say, you guys are not only a giving people, but you are a generous in giving So, with these two snapshots out of the way, Paul turns once again to look at the recent gift that was given him by the Philippians. Not only were the Philippians givers, but they were generous givers. So, in verse 18, we see that the Philippians supply Paul's needs, and their supply of his needs was generous. Paul says, I'm fully stocked, I have an abundance, I am well supplied, I've received full payment and more. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. They were not just merely giving, but they were giving with giving on top of giving, multiplied by giving. I mean, they were just giving people, opening themselves up, putting themselves actually in need themselves because of how ready they were to give. Reminds me of my grandmother-in-law, Elda. So this would be my mom's, my, my wife's mom, Debbie, her mom, Elda. So Elda's of the generation where you love on people by having a feast that looks like Thanksgiving for every meal. Um, phenomenal cook, and her love language is she, she cooks food well. And so the joke that's running in the family is this, because Elda is not only an awesome cook, creates a Thanksgiving meal for like every meal, but she is generous in her portions, So the joke is this, after you've just had like a couple rounds of meat and you've had these little appetizers and you've got salads and side salads and 10 other sides on top of that, you finally get around to the couple different drinks that she's made and you're having fun and laughing and then finally she brings out like these three or four pies that she's made on top of all this other stuff and your stuff, I mean, you're just about to explode because of what grandma has just cooked and she's always like, do you want a piece of pie? And you're always like, I mean, you can't say no to grandma, right? One, you can't say no to grandma's pie. Two, um, and so it's always, yes, Grandma, but, but Grandma, like, I don't want, like, an eighth. I want, like, a sixteenth, maybe, like, you know, a half of a sixteenth, like, not very much. And she's like, okay, you know, then what she does is she cuts you a quarter of a pie. Like, this is, the, this is the running joke because no matter what you say, you can be like, give me the cherry off the cherry pie. Grandma will give you, seriously, a quarter of the pie. She's generous. I mean, it's. I mean, it was enough that she invited us over. It wasn't enough that she made a meal. It wasn't enough that she made an extravagant meal. But when it came to portions, her she was just giving generous upon generous. I mean, you could even say, "No, Grandma, my my knees are mad. I'm full to the seams." And it's like just generous on top of generous. And this is what the Philippians are doing. This is how they're they're thinking in the way that they are giving. So much so, I mean, and the, the illustration breaks down a little here, but so much so, in Elda's giving, in Grandma's giving, she is, in a sense, creating a need for herself because she doesn't have pie, because she's generously giving it away, but that doesn't stop her from giving generously. Paul's saying the same thing here to his Philippian brothers and sisters. He's like, I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. Paul acknowledges that what they have done is pleasing to God. Their gift was a sacrificial act of worship. And this was a church who suffered affliction and poverty. I love this. We get a snapshot into this church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. When Paul says to the Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's, he's talking about Philippi here. He, they have, this will be one of the churches in Macedonia. I want you to know about this grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Listen, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, that's incredible. They're poor. They recognize they're poor. They give according to their means, and then they turn around and go, no one's forcing us. Please take more. We want to be known as generous people. The gospel was generously given to us, and so this fuels us desiring to be generous givers. So despite these things being true, despite the fact that there was abundance of joy, severe tests of affliction, extreme poverty, they were known as a people who gave in a wealth of generosity. Man, that's beautiful. They gave generously. They gave sacrificially. And they gave joyfully. Their generosity was so much so that it actually created a need in their own midst. You see that in verse 19. So in the heels of what Paul is saying about the Philippians, I believe commending them and rejoicing in what they were doing, Paul acknowledges something that is true of their situation because they were living and thinking this way. Paul says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I don't think that Paul messed up by putting that word need in there. My God will supply every need of yours. You now have a need. You were needy, yes, in your poverty, but even in your poverty, in your generous giving, now there's even more of a need. Paul says, listen, I wish I could give to you and generously repay you for your generosity shown to me, but I can't quite do that, but I know one who can. Paul reminds his gift-giving friends that God will do what he, Paul himself, is in no position to do, namely reimburse his friends. The Philippians had given so liberally that they actually left themselves in some real legitimate need. But the promise that Paul puts forward is that their obedience to the Father and generosity toward gospel giving will bring God's reward to them. As they meet all of Paul's needs, so God will meet all their needs. God does this according to the abundance of his treasury, a glorious resource without limits. Note that this does note that God does this according to his riches and glory, not out of his riches. I love that phrase there. I was talking with a friend on Friday and he illustrated this great. I went online, I just looked it up this morning before I came here. Bill Gates has reclaimed the number 1 spot on Forbes list of most rich like the highest Gross, bringing in um, billionaires. Um, it used to be a, a man from Mexico, I believe, but Gates just made like six billion this year, and so I just jumped him up above. So he's pulling now seventy nine point six billion dollars a year. Like that's that's what he's pulling in. So if if Bill Gates were to walk through this door, were to walk up to you and go, you know, you you know, um, you're in need. I know that you're in need. Somebody contacted me, and what I want to do is come. And, and bless you out of my $79.6 billion. You're like, this is going to be a good deal. Like, I need some of the seventy nine point six, Bill. I appreciate that. So Bill reaches into his pocket. I mean, he's digging deep. I mean, he's pulling in. You're like, okay, I don't know. what. Maybe it's a big check, maybe a million-dollar check. He's pulling in. Maybe it's like a wad of $100 bills he stuffed in there. So he's reaching in. And what he does is he reaches in and he pulls out a quarter flips it to you, you catch it, and he's like, peace out. I just blessed you out of my riches. I mean, he, he did. He has $80 billion, and out of that, a quarter makes up that big bank of $80 billion, So he did bless you out of his riches. But it's like, man, I don't want to be blessed just out of your riches, Bill. I want to be blessed according to your riches. You're an $80 billion worth. Do something accordingly, with how much you are worth. See, that's the beauty of this word here when when Paul says, listen, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What he's not saying is that like God is just going to plop some little quarter into your world, but God will supply your need in a manner that befits his wealth. His supplying their needs will be relative to the immensity of his eternal wealth done in a matter that is consistent with his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, that's hope-giving. That's good news for those of us who probably aren't rolling on the Forbes top 500. Because, see, the, the temptation is going to be for us to go, I see legitimate gospel need. I don't have the scratch to be able to throw towards that legitimate gospel need therefore that legitimate gospel need goes unmet. Paul according to this portion here of scripture goes, man that's not that's not legit Christian thinking. That's not the way heavenly citizens are to think. He is commending the Philippians for going gospel need worthy of giving. And Paul comes along and says, don't let your lack of funds or your perceived lack of funds somehow negate you going, man I'm going to give. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to give generously on top of generously. Trusting, resting, knowing that somehow, we don't know how, but what we do know is we have this promise that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. Jesus. And there's no more better way to wrap this up than with that doxology. I mean, this is mind blowing to Paul where he steps back and goes, we, we are living in this world and we're bumping into these circumstances. And what we can do is rest in the power of Christ. And we have God who says he knows our needs. He will supply our needs. We are in his sights. We're not off the radar of God and God will come and supply and care for and lead and guide and take care of his children. And so he bursts forth in praise and says to our God and Father. Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says, "These, these people that are with me, we want to greet you. They're saying hello, and they love you, and they care for you. And I love what he says there in verse 23 when he wraps it all up, and he says what? The grace, grace, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And boom, the book of Philippians is done like that. So how do we respond to this? I think it's as simple as this heavenly citizens are marked as are to be marked as those who are content and they're to be marked as those who are generous givers see contentment frees us toward generosity contentment that christ is in control that christ knows my circumstances contentment in the sovereignty of god knowing that he knows you He knows your circumstances, knows your situations, resting in that truth, knowing that when those situations come, the sufficiency of Jesus, because you are in Christ Jesus, will strengthen you to be able to be, work, live through. That situation brings us to that point where we can go, I can be content in this situation. Contentment is a loosener. It loosens our grip on material goods. Because what we often want to do is go, God, I know there's a time of meagerliness coming. I know there's a time when my paycheck isn't going to quite cover the bills here. So what I need to do is go, there might be potential for anxiety here in this situation. There might be potential for discontent in this situation. If I give away too much money to gospel advance, and then I'm looking at this bill going, I don't know how to quite interact with this. And so what I'm going to do is just cling to my goods because I don't want to experience discontent. So I'm going to cling to my goods, and I'm going to work my way through life being miserly with my stuff. Because I'm trusting and resting in my stuff in this situation because I don't know what's going to go on here. But what I do know is I've got money in my pocket now. And I'm not going to let this go. Because who knows if God's going to take care of this stuff out here. Paul says no. God knows your situation. Be obedient in the now. What is God calling you to in the now? Is God calling you to obedience and giving generously in the now? Yes, Contentment that God knows how to take care of you out here if you're generous in the now loosens our grip on material goods. It realizes that God is in control no matter what circumstances come our way, we can face the situation. This is Paul coming alongside his friends and commending them for right behavior. Their behavior was gospel behavior. Paul is saying, I know you're afflicted, I know you're poor, but your contentedness and God's ability to supply every need of yours has freed you to be generous givers. And in this, Paul rejoices. So I'll just close with this one question, and then I'm going to pray for us. How are you doing in regard to this thinking? Simple question. Do discontent and disbelief have a stranglehold on generosity in your life? Do discontent and disbelief have a stranglehold on generosity in your life. I don't think it's a mistake that Paul talks about contentment right on the hills of anxiety that we looked at last week. Anxiety and discontentment are first cousins. They roll, they roll in the same family. Usually when you're anxious about something because you don't know what's coming in the future, so it causes you to sort of curl up and cry because you don't know what to do and it sort of freezes you in the now. It's first cousins with, dis, with discontentment because discontentment says exactly what I just said. It looks down here and goes, man, I don't know if God will be able to supply my need out here. I don't want to be discontent in situation in life, so what I'm going to do is cling to things now because I know at least in the now I can have security in this thing. And Paul comes along and says that is not to be brothers, that is not to be sisters. God's generosity in the gospel and God's generosity in supplying our needs is the foundation for our generosity. God's generosity kills anxiety. It destroys discontent and frees us to walk as contented, generous givers. I love this here. That's the book of Philippians. And all of this flows underneath that original prayer that Paul gave us way back in Philippians chapter 1. So this is how we're going to close out the book of Philippians. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a couple of psalms, and in the end of August, we're going to fire up for several weeks in the book of 1 Peter. This has been a good book. Paul has been teaching me a lot, as I trust and hope that the Spirit of God, through the preaching of His Word, has been teaching you. So what I want to do is just go to a time of prayer, and we'll just close this out. I want to, as your pastor, pray for you according to the Scriptures, a prayer that Paul prayed for these very believers that we've been studying. And as he prayed for them in this way, then me turn these words and pray for you in this way. And then we'll close out. We'll be done. Austin will come. We'll have a time of um, taking of the Lord's Supper. And then we'll, we'll wrap up our service. Paul's prayer at the beginning of Philippians chapter 1, he says this, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus Have we not seen the affection that he has for his brothers and sisters? He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I want your love to abound with knowledge. I want your love to abound with discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Man, we saw that in Philippians 4, Philippians 1, Philippians 2. His desire is for them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We saw that in Philippians 2. He wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We see that in 2, 3, and 4. And he wants all of this to roll up and abound to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer was not just merely fancy words at the beginning of a letter. But Paul's prayer was a genuine heartfelt prayer. And his desire was to see you guys walk in this way. To see the Philippians walk in this way. God, I thank you for these words my brother. God, the way Paul yearned for the Philippian believers, God, I feel that same desire for this body of believers. God, you are my witness how I yearn for these brothers and these sisters sitting here in front of me with the affection of Christ Jesus. My desire for them is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That they would see these things that we've been talking about, what it looks like for a heavenly citizen to walk in a manner to conduct themselves in a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, to do all things without grumbling or questioning, standing firm in one spirit, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened by opposition that comes to them from people who are opposed to the gospel. To not be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, letting the requests be made known to God. God, I pray that you would lead us to approve what is excellent to so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God, we acknowledge that we cannot strive for these things on our own, but our desire is to be led and filled by the Holy Spirit, to live as citizens repping the kingdom of Jesus in our neighborhood, in our city, in our places of work, the places we go for relaxation, the places we go for recreation, the places where we meet with family and friends. God, our desire is to be kingdom citizens who represent Jesus and his kingdom with the words of Jesus Christ on our lips. And we cannot do this without the spirit of God living and moving in us. So God, I pray for for a blast of revival amongst us as kingdom citizens in our city, thinking and acting and living and moving in this way, having the good news of Jesus Christ on our lips that is not debunked by actions that speak differently than our words but that we would have conduct of life that would match the good news of Jesus Christ on our lips and that you would use us as a force taking the good news of Jesus and pushing back the darkness of Satan, sin, and death. God, help us in this manner. God, move in us in this manner where repentance is needed. Would you lead us to the place of repentance where confession of sin is needed? Would you take us to the place of confessing sin one to another where there's disunity in the body with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Break that down and would unity come because we are people redeemed by the generous good work of Jesus Christ. God, we need you to do that. It's our desire that you would do this, and we acknowledge once again that it cannot be done apart from you doing this. So God, come, have your way with your people. In Christ's name I pray these precious things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. It's this time of service that...